We all doing well today? It's not raining, huh? It's kind of wild. I actually had my sunglasses on this morning, and then I knew that the camera guys would yell at me about that, so I had to take them off. But it's nice. Spring is, feels, feels good, huh? Well, hey, I get to be here and continue this series with you on, on, uh, on shine and really looking at Jesus as this light that comes into our broken world that has lit up our lives. And if, if you are here today, if you are a follower of Jesus, you, we've experienced this, right? We, we know what it feels like to have Jesus shine in our life. And so this series is kind of celebrating that. It's enjoying that. Um, this morning, specifically, we're going to talk about this topic of shame. And I think shame is something we all kind of deal with different. We all think about a little bit differently, but it, it affects all of us, right? But I don't think we all necessarily approach it the same. My wife's a middle school counselor, and the other day she was in a, in a middle school classroom, and uh, the kids were being kids, right? And so she was like, come on, guys, shame on you. And after the class, this little girl came up to Becca, and I was like, Miss Glaze, why would you shame us? Like, this was like traumatizing for this little girl, right? And so obviously there's different thoughts of it. But I think it affects all of us, right? I mean, think about the last time you, you hurt somebody, right? Like, not just like you accidentally cut them off in traffic, but you did something that, that damaged a relationship you had with somebody else. What kind of emotions went through you in that, in that time, right? Probably all of us experienced some level of guilt, right? Like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. I feel terrible about that. There might be a sense of fear, right? Like, oh, no, I did this, and what bad things are going to happen to me as a result of that? But there, there's also this sense of shame that comes up. And it's not directly tied to the, the guilt or innocence of what we did. It's not directly tied to what might happen to us in the future. It's this relational thing that sits between us and the person that we've offended, right? This shame, this hurt. I'll give you a, a super practical example, a super personal example from my own life. Um, several years ago, after our first daughter was born, my wife and I uh, went through a series of miscarriages. And um, with each of these miscarriages, uh, for different reasons, um, I wasn't available. And my wife had to go through the hospitals and a lot of the procedures by herself. And... Um, this happened several times, and on the last time, I remember it really caused some pain and some real destruction in our relationship, right? And for me, there was this sense of guilt, right? I knew what I did was wrong. There was this pain, this, this guilt that was between us. There was this sense of fear that I, I felt like, man, I don't feel like, will our relationship ever be right again? Can we ever fix this brokenness? And there was this sense of shame that I felt, right? This, when I looked at my wife, I knew that, that the pain, the hurt I had caused her, and, and it sat there. And, and to some extent, I feel like the guilt was, I could work through that, right? I could apologize. I could kind of make amends. We could move past that. The fear kind of subsided over time. I could see that, okay, that our relationship will someday be back to normal again. But that shame wasn't easy to get rid of. And for me, from my experience, so often that shame only is eliminated through deep restoration in that relationship, right? It's that time, that investment that we spend with each other to where that relationship was fully restored, was fully mended, and then only then is that shame kind of removed from, from our, my life. And I think sometimes that's 
the world that we live in, right? We carry this shame around with us. And I think a lot of us carry this shame in our spiritual life too. There's, there's these things that we've done, this pain, this hurt in our lives, and we bring it into our relationship with God, and we feel like, oh, God couldn't love me. He couldn't accept me because he knows the shameful things I've done, the things I've done against him. And the message that I think that we, we need to hear this morning, the message that, that we need to hear from this passage is that God is calling us to abide in him. And in him there is no shame. That a righteous God, a loving God, that he cares so much about us that he gave himself for us, not just to take away our guilt, not just to take away our fear, but to remove our shame. And because of that, we can embrace him, that we can jump into a full relationship with him, that we can get rid of this baggage that we've been carrying around in our lives. Let me read this passage uh, with you. We're kind of, uh, we're going through the book of 1 John. Uh, So we're going to jump in at the end of chapter 2. So if you want to open your Bible with me, that would be rad. Uh, John 2, 1 John 2, starting at 28. We're going to go into chapter 3 here. All right. So John starts here. He says, and now little children, abide in him. So when that he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. What a great passage this is, right? That we don't have to shrink back from him in shame, that we can approach him, that we are called to abide in him because we are children of God. We are loved by him. So the the first point I want us to just kind of dwell on to think about this morning is, is this point here, that you are loved by a righteous God, so don't be ashamed. Think about this for a second, that a righteous God, a pure God, a perfect God, loves you to the point where you don't have to be ashamed, that you can approach him. So again, if you are here today, and I think all of us are here today carrying some amount of shame, right? We kind of look in the mirror, sort of speak at our soul. And just like some of us, when we look in the mirror of our physical mirror, we're ashamed, right? We look in the mirror of our soul and we see our actions and we have this shame. Maybe it's we feel like we don't hold up to a certain moral standard or, or we don't have our doctrine, our theology perfectly aligned or our ideology isn't right where it's supposed to be or any of these things that we take into this relationship with God and we say, oh man, I'm ashamed. I'm not good enough. And this passage, I think today what we need to hear is that God has declared us as his children. He says that you are his children. Let's get what it says in verse one. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. I love this. He says, this is the love of God. It's shown in the fact that he looked down on you and he said that you're his children, and so you are. There's not up for discussion. It's not an option. It's not something that is out there potentially. It is that he says that I've called you my children. I have called you my child, and so you are. 
not so that you will be someday, not so that you used to be, but now you got to get back there because you're not quite there anymore, but that so you are. And because of that, we can approach him with shame. Because of that relational love that he has for us, we can come to him. And I think this is so important for us because let's be honest, shame is actually not totally uh, a terrible thing, right? When we sin, we feel what? Shame, guilt, pain, right? That, that is actually the natural consequence of our sin. And when we feel that, it, it helps us realize that, that our sin is wrong, right? It helps us guide us and direct us. Yet, for us to carry that shame can become destructive because God looks at us with a different identity. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross not just to, to remove our sin, but to remove the effects of that sin in our life. And he has rewritten our, our ID, kind of the, the report of our life. If you were to pull up your, if you were a follower of Jesus and you were to pull up your spiritual birth certificate, right? It would no longer say lost orphans of this world, but it would say loved child of God. And that makes a huge difference because we know now that even though we have the pain, the brokenness of our lives, that we can approach God without shame, that he accepts us, that he loves us. When I was in high school, I had a a good friend of mine who uh, his parents were moving out of the area and he wanted to finish high school at our high school. And so my parents offered to let him stay with us, right? Um, But my buddy and I grew up in very different contexts. We had a very different sense of morality and right and wrong. And um, this friend of mine got in a lot of trouble. He got in trouble at school and at home. And and, um, I remember at the end of that year, my parents uh, talked to him and this was our junior year in high school. And they said, listen, if you want to come back again next year, here's this series of changes that you need to make in order to be invited back to our house, right? And I was thinking about how different that is than the experience like my brother and I felt. Never did my parents sit me down at the end of the school year and go, all right, Nate, if you want to continue to be my child, (laughs) here's some things you got to work on, right? Because my buddy was just a house guest in our house, but I was a child of my parents, And I think that that's the same message that we need to hear this morning is that you are not just a house guest of God, that you are a child of God, that he loves you, that he calls you. And the call is very specific. He has called you to abide in him, to connect with him. It doesn't matter the broken things you've done, the the lies you've told, who you've slept with, the beliefs that you have. God is saying, come, abide with me. This word abide is kind of a weird word, right? It's not a word that most of us use on a regular basis. I don't ever call my buddies up and go, hey, do you want to abide today? Right? It's just, it's not part of my vocabulary. Yet it's this important spiritual word, right? It's, it's this word that we see throughout the Bible, and it's especially important when it talks about our relationship with God. The word abide is to come and to stay with somebody, to live with somebody, to get to know somebody. And I don't know about you, but I think you really get to know somebody when you stay with them, right? Have you ever, like, stayed with somebody for a period of time, even just a couple of days? You start to get to know them. You know what they're like in the morning, right? You know if they're the kind of person that just, like, pops out of bed, fully done up, ready to go, or if they come out of bed just angry at the world. You you know what they eat. You know what kind of TV they watch. You know how they treat their spouse, right? And this is the relationship God has called us to. He says, come abide with me. Stay with me. 
But again, come and abide with me, stay with me, but not just as a, a foreign house guest that I just feel obligated to take in. Come abide with me, stay with me, because this is your home. This is where you belong. This is where your identity is found. And when you abide with me, you see the truth of who you are. And I'm overwhelmed by that concept, the fact that God, the creator of the universe, a God who is righteous, a God who is pure, a God who is perfect, he says to me, come Abide with me. And in that abiding, I see and I feel and I experience the restoration of my relationship with him. See, going back to my kind of opening illustration with my wife and I, our, our marriage was restored. Our marriage in, in a beautiful, a profound way. And it happened because we abided with each other, right? We spent time with each other. We, we did the hard time of connecting and sharing life and being built up in each other. And in the same way now, I look at my wife without shame. If, well, in that particular issue, there's probably other reasons I should have shame. But, you know, um, and after this service, I'm going to feel shame with all of you all for sharing all this. But, but there's something deeply relational that has to happen for that shame to be removed. And, and I believe that's the message that I'm hearing this morning out of this text is come abide with me. We're going to do something a little bit out of sync with how we normally do things here. We're going to take communion here in a couple of moments, and then we'll continue the sermon after that. But I want us to just take a pause this morning. So often when I approach communion, when I approach the sacrifice that Jesus has made for me, I think of it kind of in judicial sense, judicial terms. I think of all the guilt that I have and kind of the judge's scales and, and the sin and how Jesus removed that sin and And that is all true, and that's all profoundly important to my worship and my love of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for me. But this morning, I want us to also reflect on the fact that when we celebrate communion, we're remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made, not just to remove the guilt of our sin, but the shame of our sin, the the brokenness in our relationship with him, to restore that relationship with him. I was thinking about the context of that first communion, right? Jesus is sitting around the table with his disciples. They're abiding with each other in a very practical, very real sense. And he knows that a time is coming very soon where they're not gonna be physically abiding with him. And they're gonna be needed a reminder of their relationship with him, a reminder of the sacrifice that he made with them. So he institutes the Lord's Supper as this constant tradition, this reminder that we can come back to regularly and remember what Jesus has done for us. Let me read this passage out of Luke to you. It says, And when the hour came, he, he being Jesus, reclined at the table with the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you the truth, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled, the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup, and after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant of my blood.
So I want to kind of transition us now because I think this passage transitions and it gives us some real practical picture of what it means to be a child of God. See, if we're a part of a, a family, there's always kind of a culture. There's an expectation that that family brings with it, right? Like um, my wife and I are super outdoorsy kind of people. That's just who we are. So my poor little girls from the time they were born have kind of like, there's just no, if you're going to live in our house, you have to learn how to ski. You have to learn how to mountain bike. That's just what's expected of them, right? In fact, it was funny the other day, my father-in-law was staying with us and he was trying to get my two-year-old to tell him about her preschool. And so he was like, so honey, what do you do when you, uh, the preschool right here, little lamb. He's like, what do you do when you uh, leave the house in the morning? And without missing a beat, she goes, bike rides. <laughs> like, it's like, no, other than, but that's just, that's our, our family, right? And when we're part of a family, there's a certain culture, there's a certain identity, there's a certain set of expectations of what it means to be a part of that family. And, and so I, um, I think it's important for us to talk about it. What does it mean for us to be loved by a righteous God and to live fully embracing that identity as part of his family. So I want to reread the passage we read and kind of keep going a little bit further. So if you want to um, kick your Bibles back open to 1 John um, chapter 2, starting again at verse 28 here. It says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of father, love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children. Now, and, sorry. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, and what we know but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. For everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. See, I love this because this passage, it connects both the the who we are and what we are to be in one connection. But it's also this great reminder that we're not there yet, right? And, and I think the, the point that, that I see in this is that God's work in us is not finished. And so Jesus is our model and not each other. See, it's saying that if you are to abide in him, righteousness is to be birthed out in our lives. But he also says that we are not yet as we truly are, but when he appears, when we see him, we will be like him. See, I think this is really encouraging for me because I, I don't want this to be who I am, right? Like, I, I, I know and I hope that God has a plan for my life that is better than I currently am. And so I think sometimes, though, I can spend my whole life just trying to fix up who I am instead of focusing on who he is. And I think that's a really important distinction. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen like a young child like who finds its shadow for the first time, right? They're just kind of walking along and all of a sudden on the wall next to them is this lurky character that's just following them wherever they go. And they kind of freak out and they try to run away from their shadow. Have you maybe seen this? Or maybe the opposite holds true. Um, 
like they see their shadow and they try to catch it no matter how much they try to run after their shadow. And, and you realize that that's, that's kind of a lost pursuit because the shadow is just a distortion in a way of the reality of who they are, right? The shadow is not truly them. It's not truly, it, it's just a reflection. It's a distortion of who they are. And I think the same thing can happen for us as followers of Jesus if we just focus on on changing things about our lives of just running around and trying to stomp out each individual sin in our life, then it can be a little bit like chasing our shadow. It's a little bit of just manipulating the distortion in our world. And I think this passage is this great hope that no, our hope is in him. Our hope is to look to Jesus because when we look to Jesus, when we see him, and it's talking about when he comes back, when we see him, we will be like we are made to be. We will be made perfect because he is perfect. And so I think the action for us now is to focus on him, to be purified in him, to look to him, and not just to look to everything else in our world to try to figure ourselves out. And I think so often that the shame in our life comes from the fact that we can't measure up to all these different expectations that we put on ourselves, that we put on each other. And so I think for some of us, kind of manipulating our shadow might be trying to look good, trying to do all the right Christian activities so that we feel good about ourselves. Okay, I gotta serve, I gotta be part of a Bible, so I gotta do all these different things, that way I can feel Christian enough. Or maybe manipulating our shadow is, is about these moral things in our lives. And we, we try to, to do all these different things so that we feel good enough. Or it's looking at those around us and saying, man, I, I need to believe and act and do like everybody else around me. And knowing that God is working in all their lives and he's not done in their lives either, right? That, that those are the distortions of the reality. The reality is Jesus. So what does it look like for us to look to Jesus? And some of the actions might be the same, Right? It might be us serving. It might be us reading our Bible. It might be us going to church, being in fellowship with his community. But the motivation is so different in that. The motivation is not just trying to manipulate ourselves to be good enough. The motivation is deeply relational. It is about getting to know the God who has saved us, the God who is our father, the God who says, see what great love I have for you that I've called you my children. And out of that place, our actions then have purpose and meaning. They find something that's concrete. They find the righteous one, and we begin to pursue him and not just to pursue each other. And I think that's really important because righteousness is a part of the Christian life. It is part of being part of the family of God, right? This passage goes on. We're not gonna have time to to fully break it all apart, Um, but it goes on to say that um, if you abide in Christ, you will be righteous. And if you are not righteous, that you are not abiding in Christ. Now, this is something that has challenged people, I believe, since this passage was first written. I imagine when the the people first read this letter of John, they went, wait a second, I'm not righteous. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Do, Do I have to be perfect? Do I have to be sinless in order to be a Christian? And I don't think that's the point at all. I think the point is that when we are abiding in Christ, we are living, we are seeing the actions and the righteousness of Christ, and it begins to be birthed out in our life. And so when we see unrighteousness in our life, when we see evil in our life, when we see brokenness and hatred, the response to that should be, I need to be abiding in Christ. I need to be pursuing him. I need Jesus in my life. And we see that the 
antidote for our sin is not sinning less. The antidote for our sin is Jesus. And when we as a church, when we abide in him, when we connect with him, he begins to shine out of our life, right? This series title we call Shine, and it's this idea both of the shining of Jesus, shining into our world, and then shining out of our lives. And, and we use this image, right, of the, the lanterns floating up. And I could picture, I've, I've never seen this in person, but I can imagine being like in northern Thailand somewhere, right, where they're lighting up these lanterns, and it's a dark night, and these lanterns just go floating up into the sky and how beautiful that is. And I think that is a really a beautiful image of, of what it looks like when we as the church are abiding in Christ, when God's love is shining out of our lives, when we are no longer people of hatred and anger and bitterness, but we are people of God's love. And we see that reflected. But I also think it's important for me to realize that um, these lanterns are let off when? During the daytime or at nighttime? Nighttime, Right? If you were to light these, I mean, we kind of cheated here and put some blue in behind it. I think that's some Photoshopping action happening there. But I would imagine if you let off all those lanterns at noon, it wouldn't be very beautiful, right? In fact, it would look like a big litter festival. These just like floating paper bags just drifting off into the abyss, right? And we see that, that it's in this dark world that that light shines out, yet There's also this great hope that we have that there's gonna come a day where Christ is gonna return and the darkness of our world is gonna be lit up and we are gonna be as he has designed us to be. And we have great hope in that and we pursue that. We long for that. I wanna read um, one more uh, part of this passage and uh, really look at what does it mean specifically for us to be a church that that loves. So if you, I wanna go down to verse 16 with me. 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deeds and truth. By this we shall know that we are the the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandments, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. See, I love this. It gets very practical here at the end of this passage, right? If you are loved by a righteous God, then the response to that is to love one another. Loved people love people. When I was in youth ministry, we used to have this expression, right? Hurt kids hurt kids. Right, And it was this idea that if you saw a kid that was kind of a bully that was going around hurting kids, have a little bit of empathy for that kid because that kid is probably a a hurt kid himself. And sometimes we are hurt kids, right? We live in a world that hurts us. We've got all sorts of unmet expectations. We've got people who have damaged us, who have hurt us, that have seen mean and cutting things. And as a result, so often we hurt others. We try to put our own needs above other people. We push other people down. And the message of this passage is that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, that is not your reality. 
That might be what you've experienced. That might be the distortion of your life. But the reality is you are loved by a righteous God that cares about you, that loves you, that in him there is no shame. And so you don't need to be a hurt kid hurting kids. You are a loved person to love people. And that is a profound difference. In fact, this gets real practical, right? It says if you got the needs, the means to help people and you're not, that's not what God's called you to. That's not what it looks like to abide in him. If you see somebody hurting, you are to love them, you are to care for them. And I was thinking about that specifically in this passage in the context of, context of shame, that the love that Jesus has showed for us is such a profound love that it removes our shame. So what would it look like if we loved each other in a way that removed the shame from our relationship with each other? See, this is different than just forgiving somebody. It's different than just being nice and, and um, generous to somebody. What would it look like to have relationships that were restorative, that brought restoration and healing and removed shame from each other's lives? I heard this interview on the radio uh, this week, and it was of this woman whose son was murdered. And um, this Christian woman did an incredible work of kind of, I think of what this passage is talking about, a love that was restorative, a love that removed shame. So we're gonna watch this little interview with her and then um, we'll talk about it here in a minute. So if we can show that video. On February 12th, 1993, I received a call that no parent wants to receive. Hatred began when, um, uh, and I found out um, who had taken Lorraine Mina's life. I think it started then. And uh, I, I'm a Christian woman. And I was just full of hatred. I, I, I didn't like anybody at that time. He agreed to meet with me again, and then we shook hands. And then he asked if he could hug me, and I said yes. And uh, we uh, walked around the table, and we hugged, and they say I was hysterical. I don't remember that part. But um, I know I began to fall, and I know that he held me up. I mean, he could have dropped me or anything, but he held me up. And I believe that that is where some bonding began to take place. And when he left the room, I was, I was bent all over saying, you know, I just hugged the man that murdered my son. I just hugged the man that murdered my son. I began to feel something in my feet and it just began to just move, and it moved up and up and up until I felt this thing leave me. And I instantly knew that all oh, the hatred, the bitterness, the animosity, the anger, I instantly knew that all that stuff was gone, that it was over with. The story goes on from here. Um, and she actually, uh, O'Shea, she threw a welcome home party for him when he got out of prison. And she invited all the neighborhood together. And not only that, she actually found an apartment in, or a room in the house next door to her. And she moved him into this house and she became like his mother. The, the son that was murdered, she restored that relationship with the murderer. And I just think of how beautiful that story is, that she didn't just offer forgiveness. She didn't just 
kind of make, let him make amends, but that they fully restored that relationship to a place where he didn't have to feel shame with her anymore, that he was loved by her. Now, that's an extreme example, right? Um, but what would it look like for us to live out this love that we've experienced, to be a loved people that love people? Who are the people in our lives that we still carry this pain that we, we kind of allow that shame in that relationship, that we kind of leave it there because it feels right. What would it look like for us to be a restorative people? So kind of as a, a takeaway this morning, I think there's a couple of things for us to, to think about. First off, what's that shame that we're carrying, right? And we all have it. Maybe it's big, maybe it's little. What is those things that, that maybe we're not fully abiding in Christ because of this shame we have? Maybe today's the time to give it up to God and say, God, I, I feel this shame and I don't want it. I want to come to you without fear, without shame. And second point being, um, how can we be loved people that love people? What does that specifically look like for us this week? What's, what's one practical way that we can be loving, that we can, we can care for people, that we can show the righteousness of Christ through our actions, through our love? Let me close us in prayer and we'll, we'll continue with worship and... Um, continue our service. God, we are overwhelmed by you. You are a good God. You are a loving God. We don't deserve it, yet you've given it to us freely. I pray that we can receive it, that we are not so arrogant that we think that we have to earn it on our own, that we're not so prideful that we think um, that we got to carry our own shame, but that we see you as taking it, and that we, in turn, act out that love, act out that acceptance with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.